And so here we are. New Year's Day, once again, right? Now, Marion uh, mentioned resolutions. How many of you make resolutions yourselves? Anybody in here? <laughs> Not a single hand, really? How many of you out there in the community, in, the, in, the, in camera land, are waving your hands right now? Okay. You know, it's interesting because uh, it, uh, resolutions do tend to be something that younger people do rather than older people. And when younger people do them, they tend to keep them more than older people. But I had a few stats here. Um, you know, what are the main resolutions that people in the United States are making from year to year? <laughs> it falls in several, in, you know, sort of typical categories. Earn more money, right? There's a New Year's resolution. Lose weight, right? Get organized. Manage time better. Spend more quality time with family. Reduce debt. Help others. Find a soulmate or work on the marriage. Find a better job. Quit smoking. Those are the main categories that people usually fall into with their New Year's resolutions. Here's the bad news. About 97% of New Year's resolutions won't be kept. 30% of all resolutions are broken within the first week. How about that? Most resolutions are abandoned by the third week in January. 45% of Americans usually set New Year's resolutions. That's a lot, 45%. Only 8% are always successful in achieving their resolutions. I want to meet that 8%. Who are these people? I think they're machines, actually. The younger you are, the more likely you are to achieve your resolutions. 39% in their 20s achieve resolutions every year or every other year. Less than 15% over 50 achieve resolutions every year or every other year. The less happy you are, the more likely you are to set a New Year's resolution. So that means you're all just perfectly content, right? There's nothing to uh, set. And one last, there is actually no correlation between happiness and resolution setting or resolution success. Interesting, huh? People who achieve their resolutions every year are no happier than those who do not set resolutions at all or who were unsuccessful in achieving them. Kind of interesting there. Yeah. Some interesting quotes about New Year's resolutions. I just love these. New Year's resolution to tolerate fools more gladly, provided this does not encourage them to take up any more of my time. <laughs> that was James Agate. New Year's Day is now the accepted time to make your regular annual good resolutions. Next week, you can begin paving hell with them as usual. <laughs> that was Mark Twain, just in case you're wondering. 30 ways to shape up for the new year. Number one, eat less. Number two, exercise no, uh, more. Number three, what was I talking about? I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> Maria Bamford. And finally, uh, my New Year's resolution list usually starts with the desire to lose between 10 and 3,000 pounds. And may all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. That's a good one. May all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. You know, not everyone is so cynical about New Year's resolutions. Um, there is a desire to start fresh in every one of us as we cross this, even though it's an imaginary New Year's line. And Steven Spielberg said, all of us, every single year, we're a different person. I don't think we're the same person all our lives. C.S. Lewis there are far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. G.K. Chesterton, 
The object of a new year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose, new feet, a new backbone, new ears, and new eyes. Unless a particular man made New Year's resolutions, he would make no resolutions at all. Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. And then finally, Neil Gaiman, if you know who he is, I hope that in this year to come, you make mistakes. Because if you are making mistakes, then you are making new things, trying new things, learning, living, pushing yourself, changing yourself, changing your world. You're doing things you've never done before. And more importantly, you're doing something. So that's my wish for you and all of us and my wish for myself. Make new mistakes. Make glorious, amazing mistakes. Make mistakes nobody's ever made before. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Don't worry that it isn't good enough or it isn't perfect. Whatever it is, art or love or work or family or life, whatever it is you're scared of doing, do it. Make your mistakes next year and forever. Not bad. We all need a sense of progression. That's the key here. Setting dates and setting, setting milestones for ourselves is part of that innate need that we have as human beings to have a sense that something is moving forward, something is changing, that we have a chance to begin again, that we have a chance for rebirth, that things aren't stagnant, that the things that were won't be the things that always are. As I mentioned a couple of times now, yeah, New Year's is an artificial line. You know, it's something that we, we've sort of made up in our own minds. But it's important to us as humans. The first apartment that Marion and I had when, after we were married was in uh, Turtle Rock, up uh, you know, around Irvine Way. And we were right on the edge of the nature preserve. And there was a colony of turkey vultures that lived in the eucalyptus all around us. And I loved those critters. Every time I'd get up, I'd watch them because they'd be, they were so predictable. You know, they'd be you know, roosting in the trees, waiting for it to warm up enough that the thermals were there, and then they'd climb onto the thermals, and that would take them around. It was like every day they waited for the bus to go to the office, you know? And they'd go to the office all day, and they'd do what they did, and then they would come back on those thermals, and they'd roost back in the trees, day in, day out. It didn't matter if it was Christmas or New Year's or my birthday or anything. They were just there. It was either raining, and the sun was... And if it was raining, then they would just be hunched over and looking really miserable, you know? But if it was sunny, they'd just wait for the thermals and do their thing. Every day, exactly the same as the other day, either rain or shine, they did what they did. And there was no distinguishing between one day or another with them. They just lived every single day as if it were the only day. Think about the, your, your dogs at home. I suppose your cats too, although they're harder to figure out. But your dog is the same way, right? Every day is the same day. There's no line. There's no distinguishing time. It's just dark or it's light. The food's out. It's not. They just do their thing over and over again. We're the ones that tend to think of time as a straight line, especially here in the West. Not so much in the East. In the East, they can think of time more as a, as a circle. But time really is a circle. This idea of time as a segment with the beginning and the end is just a mental construct that we do for convenience. And it sort of mimics our lives because we've got a birth date and an end date, and it seems like we're moving in 
kind of a line. It may not be straight, but we're at least moving in a line, and our consciousness kind of sits along that line. But if you think about it, time is really a circle. The universe, if you think about it, is a clock. It's made of circles. Everything is a circle. And, and the universe can't help it. Gravity and surface tension naturally pulls all matter into the smallest possible surface area that it can contain, which is a sphere or a circle. And so everything as we look out there, why are the planets round? Because they have no other shape they can possibly be when gravity pulls everything in. Why are our galaxies round? Okay, maybe they're ellipses, but they're round. And the orbits of the planets and the revolution, everything is circles and circles within circles and circles upon circles. This is the vast clockwork of the universe. And awareness of these circles, awareness of the entropy, which really gives us the sense of an arrow of time, that things are moving inexorably in one direction, but the awareness of these circles is what we experience as time. Our movement along these circles. But there's no beginning and there's no end. There's just an endless circle over and over again. The days, the months, the seasons, the years, everything is a measurement of a circle. And when we come full circle, that is what is understood as perfection. Perfecting a circle perfecting a year, perfecting a circuit or a cycle is to come full circle and to complete the cycle. So, was last year perfect? I don't know that anyone would raise their hand for that one. You know, Was last year a perfect year? Well, I'll tell you what, it is now. It is now. It's complete. In the, in the, the Hebrew and, and Aramaic word, gemar, it is perfect because we have come full circle. We have completed the circuit. We have fulfilled the circuit. It is perfected in that sense. But the start and the end points that we set for our years are arbitrary. The Earth has no idea that it's completed a circle. It just keeps on moving. And we'll keep on moving until something finally stops it at some point. But there is no sense that the circle has com been completed. We have that sense. And really, the only way that we know that we're in one place or another in that circle is because of the solstices and the equinoxes. Those give us those four cardinal points within the circle of the Earth spinning around the sun that we know that we are going someplace. Why do you think those ancient megaliths were all geared toward trying to figure out where those solstices and where those equinox were? Because they needed to know, where were they on this trip? What is the zodiac about? but being able to see as you move through the year that the sun is rising into a different constellation that is the backdrop between our point of view and the other side of the sun as it rises into that constellation. And those are only visible from Earth. We're the only ones that have a sense that time is moving. The Earth is just continuing to do what it does over and over again. But we set this line, and it's an arbitrary line, and it's different. You know, Hebrews have a different New Year's. Chinese have a different New Year's Day. We have our New Year's Day. We set the line and we come back to it year after year and perfect that circle, perfect that circuit, that year, that season. But if we're going to look at perfection this way, it's going to force us to look at perfection, this concept of being perfect, in a very different way. 
And this is going to be real important for us as we move forward in our spiritual journeys as well. What did Jesus mean when he said, be ye perfect? See how I revert to King James at certain times. Be ye perfect. I love that. Be perfect. You know, that should strike fear into anybody's heart. How am I supposed to be perfect? And then his brother James says, be perfect and complete. Doesn't that sound impossible? How are we supposed to do that? We know we're not perfect. We know that there's no way that we can attain perfection as we understand perfection, but that's the key. How can we re-understand this idea of perfection and perfecting these cycles in our lives in a way that the scriptures can actually mean something relevant to us, something that can actually teach us? Because to be perfect does not mean to be without mistake to be without blemish. Kind of brings back what Neil Gaiman was saying, make mistakes. We're not supposed to be without mistakes. And we certainly know that we're not without flaw or without blemishes. The idea of perfection means to come full circle, to come back home again, to be fully present again after having taken a journey that took us away from our starting point and then brought us back again. Our full presence, our full awareness is the perfection in the moment that the Aramaic is talking about, that Jesus is talking about, that James is talking about. Our full presence and awareness in the moment and our sense of perfection of having a perfect moment where we are fully present and immersed and aware is momentary. We can't take our perfection and then smear it across the entire length of our lives. But we can have moments, perfect moments, because of this realization. James, Jesus' brother, has a theme of endurance to completion in his book. Over and over again, he talks about enduring into completion. Now, we endured 2022. It doesn't mean that it was horrible, but we endured it in the sense that we completed it. We perfected it. You know, we're still here breathing, so we outlived 2022. We perfected that particular year. It's not a comment. This idea of perfection is not a comment on how well we did in this year. Just that we did this year. We came full circle. We completed the circuit. We completed the cycle. We completed the journey of this past year. James puts it at uh, chapter 1, starting verse 2. It's in your handouts, and I'm sure Brandon's already got it up. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about endurance through difficult times. And many of us are going through difficult times. We just prayed for several of them right now. Now, anyone who's going through difficult times doesn't mean that your difficult times, your trials are over because the year is over, right? We sort of know that. We perfected the year, but we haven't perfected our trials yet. We haven't perfected those times in our lives. But this is not the kind of perfection that James is even talking about. To endure to a perfect result 
is not about the outcome or the result of the trial or the difficulty or the challenge that you faced. It's about the effect that the trial or the difficulty has had on you, not the effect you have on the trial or the outcome. I wrote in the, in the fifth way that a hero is not one who completes the journey, but the one whom the journey completes. It's that kind of idea. We are so focused on how we affect the outcome, but it's really about the process of the journey affecting us. That's where the completion comes from. If we have only endurance through gritted teeth, that's not the endurance that James is talking about. Really, the outcome to James is irrelevant. It's the process. Did we and were we able to move through the cycle, move through the process with something that started to approach? He calls it joy. Maybe a little bit strong of a word. But could we do it with a certain amount of cheerfulness? Could we do it with a certain amount of of grace, a certain amount of, of simple dignity? Because if we didn't, then we're really what we call in the program a dry drunk. Right? Someone who has at least hit the outcome that they're looking for, but they've got none of the grace, none of the happiness, none of the joy, none of the learning, none of the maturing. Nothing has happened. Nothing has really changed. All they've done is gone to another lifestyle. That's not the kind of perfection that James is talking about here. Have we come to accept life's terms and conditions, even within these difficult trials and these processes that we find ourselves in? Have we come to accept life on life's terms? Have we come to accept that these trials can actually mature us, can grow us, can perfect us, and therefore we treat them in a different way? We're able to see something in them that is worth moving through. And because of that, can we find ourselves actually grateful in the moment? Not because the moment is perfect, often far from it, right? But because we are perfectly present to the moment. We are connected to the moment. We are perfectly connected to the imperfection of the moment. That doesn't bother us anymore the way it did before. Not that we're not still working to change it, but in this moment, we let this moment be enough for us. We let this moment fulfill us. We allow ourselves to be present to it, not to pull back, not to run away, not to make ourselves completely unpresent and avoiding what is right in front of us, but allow ourselves to be perfectly present to it. That's difficult to do, isn't it? Really difficult, and it depends on the difficulty of the moment, how difficult it's going to be. And it's difficult with people, too, because people are imperfect. And they annoy us sometimes. And how are you going to want to allow yourself to be present to your annoyance? But can you change the annoyance into something else that allows you then to be able to embrace what you formerly saw as annoying? I had a friend decades ago, and I've told this story before, so if you've heard it, you know, you can take a little moment off. But um, his name was Ram 
Ram Kalaf, and he was from India. He's just the greatest guy. I worked with him uh, in a corporate setting, and uh, he had really dark skin and just a blinding smile. When he opened that smile, it's like he literally turned the lights on in the room, and he had a personality to match. Just, just wonderful guys. I got to know him in the work setting, and then we started hanging out together. Um, but Ram had a different <laughs> concept of time than I did. And uh, he would not just be a little bit late. He could literally be two or three hours late every time we got together. And that was really annoying because, you know, you're trying to plan something. But I, when we, once we got together, no matter how late he was, we always had a great time. And he typically would show up with uh, tandoori chicken or something that he made. Usually the red stuff was all over his shoes, but he at least had the chicken with him. It seemed. And so what I realized that the workaround for me was whenever I met Ram, I met him at home. And I just lived my life until he showed up, and it was a great surprise, and it wasn't annoying anymore. You know, How can we find ways to be able to work around the annoyances that really are more about us often? than they are about the moment or the person themselves that we deem as imperfect. How can we embrace the imperfection? How can we embrace this moment? Accepting the imperfection. Not only accepting it, but counting on it. I counted on Ram to be late. I got more done, you know, while I was waiting for him. But loving the fact that they have this eccentricity, this thing about their personality that is predictable, and you learn to actually love it and enjoy it, and you could even thrive in it. And if thriving is too strong a word with some of the things you may be thinking about that are annoying you, at least if we can understand the purpose of the difficulty that we're facing, how it has a valence that can help us grow us up, that we can face this now with a sense of cheerfulness and realize that the difficulty is giving us the meaning. And now we have a reason to endure through it. James continues in chapter 5 of his book, starting at verse 7. Therefore, be patient. Patiently endure, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So now we have this idea of patiently enduring. And once again, maybe this idea of joy, you know, count it all joy, is too strong, but let's back that off and say, can we at least have the grace? Can we at least have the lowered blood pressure of realizing that there's something here for us if we will pay attention to it? Can we see the value in persisting through to the completion of that particular cycle, whatever it happens to be? Now, he calls it the coming of the Lord. And for us, that that picture is apocalyptic images when we hear this, but that's not really what it meant in in the Hebrew or the Aramaic. This phrase, the coming of the Lord, was an idiom. It could be for our own death, That's the coming of the Lord for each of us, right? But it also could mean the end of an era or the end of an epoch, the end of that completion of that cycle. Something that was known to a people for a cycle of time, and then it comes to an end. For these people, they were coming to the end of a cycle, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the second temple in uh, 70 AD, and that was only 30 years away didn't know it necessarily, even though it was being predicted. And if you're paying attention, you could see where all the violence was heading between Judea and Rome. 
But that would be also a day of the Lord coming to this end of a cycle. But more broadly, this day of the Lord is this just this completion of a cycle, completion of an age, to endure through to the end of the trial that you happen to be in, to come again full circle. And since it's impossible to know when the cycle is going to end, right, it's always imminent. It's always near. It's always now. Think about it. Anything that you don't have a date for is always kind of now. It can happen at any moment. Kind of morbidly, our deaths are like that. We don't have an end date. So it's always could be now. But we have a vacation plan for next month at a certain day. Now we've got a line segment. Now we're looking forward. See how that works psychologically and just experientially? This day of the Lord, we never have a date for. Jesus says you will never have a date for it. You will never know the hour or the day. So it always is imminent. It is always expected any and every day. And we need to be ready every and any day. That's the whole point here. And he uses the images of the gardener again, the farmer. And here's the farmer waiting on the rains, the early and the late rains, waiting on the soil, waiting on the seed to do their things. The idea of the early and the late rains, right? The early rain, the yore, and the late rain, the melkosh. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Leaving Egypt where everything was expected, you had the annual flooding of the Nile Valley. And they knew how to deal with that. It had a date to it. They kind of pointed to when it was supposed to be there. And they could irrigate, and they could plant, and they could control the crops. The Jews are moving to a place that had no water source like that. They had to rely on the early rains that came in October through December and the late rains, the Malkush, that came in March and April. And those were the two rains that completed their crops, completed the cycle of planting. And they had to be completely dependent on God for those rains. They showed up, and they did the work, and they planted, and they did all the things that they needed to do, but the miracle, the actual miracle of new growth, of these harvests, that was a gift from God that they had to wait for. This is why he uses this idea here. The patient endurance is like the gardener, like the farmer, to see the value in persisting to completion. All of this is what James is trying to get us to see that all things come in their time, and all we do is participate in the cycle, actually ride the cycle in harmony with what's going on, rather than violently being trying to stick square pegs into round holes and make things happen on our own time frame. It's the classic contrast between the warrior and the gardener. Often in Christianity, especially in conservative Christianity, we use the image of the warrior. And we'll look back to Paul saying, putting on the armor of God. But if you look at Jesus' imagery, he never uses the warrior as an image for what he's trying to get across. He's always using the gardener. Because the warrior is about events. About making things happen. The gardener is about participation in a process that happens just day after day cycle after cycle. The warrior is preemptive, striking, imperialistic, right? But the gardener is holistic. 
everything together. The gardener is immersive. The gardener is participating in these cycles. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Right? But the idea of a peacemaker here is not just someone who stops a conflict, who stops a war. That's our idea of a peacemaker. Again, an event. Rather than, as the language actually suggests, someone who shows up day after day, like a gardener, planting seeds, preparing soil, waiting for the miracle to happen, the miracle of the harvest, the miracle of shalom, of peace, which means wholeness, completion, perfection, coming full circle. All these words are really pointing to the same thing if we take a look at them from their Hebrew mindset. These peacemakers, these people who show up day after day, invisibly, unseen, unheralded, unrewarded to just do the work of preparing everything for that moment when the wholeness, the full circle, the completion comes, shall be called sons, children of God, which again is an idiom for being identical with God, that God is doing exactly the same thing that these people are doing is why they would be called children of God. The child is the extension of the parent. The son is the extension of the king in your presence. It's the same thing here. Jesus is saying that these people who have this attitude, the willingness to just work cycles after cycles, are mirroring the work of our God, how our God operates invisibly, unseen, showing up day after day, alive in the cycles that become insignificant to us because they become familiar to us. We don't see them anymore. We don't value them anymore. We don't call them sacred anymore. But if we're going to move into this understanding that Jesus and James are trying to get to us to move into, we'll see it in a very different way. I wanted to read you just a little bit of a of a book, The Hidden Gospel, looking at Jesus' gospel from an Aramaic point of view. Just take a listen. It's called Waiting for Completeness. If we accept this completeness as a goal for our life's work, the questions arise. How and when do we get there? What do we do with our incompleteness in the meantime? To answer these questions, we need to consider the Aramaic sense of two words considered briefly in the introduction, good and evil. Those words have more non-Middle Eastern baggage attached to them than any others we have considered so far. To begin to unload this baggage, imagine the following scene with me. The smell of apple, almond, and sycamore trees in blossom. The sight of riotously colored wildflowers in bloom on a hillside above the Sea of Galilee. The sound of thousands of variegated water birds egrets, herons, and cranes following their intricate and beautiful migratory patterns up the Jordan Rift Valley just at the right time. The black basalt hills above the Sea of Galilee, Galilee providing rich, dark, but very thin soil upon which to sow. The strong winds blowing in from the Mediterranean at particular times of the day. In such a setting, timing was essential for success in planting. 
in Yeshua's day, the whole area of Galilee was much wetter than it is now, virtually a jungle in many areas. Water buffalo and lion roamed about. To travel safely through this wild landscape depended on knowing when certain areas were flooded, when animals that might be dangerous to humans were present, and when and where one could find edible food. Yeshua experienced all of these sensations of the natural world around him as it followed the rhythm of sacred unity. To describe this rhythm of rightness and ripeness, the Aramaic language uses the word taba, usually translated good. From its roots, the word points to something that maintains its integrity and health by an inner sense of growth in harmony with what surrounds it. The Gospels quote Jesus using the word taba in several different ways. In one sense, it means that which is in tune, in time, and in harmony with sacred unity. Those who are good are at the right place and the right time with the right action. In this sense, they are prepared for any event, ready with full presence in the moment. Staying in ripeness, staying in harmony, right time, right place, that's good, that's taba. And then you can say, okay, bisha, evil, is unripeness, immaturity, out of time, out of harmony, wrong place. This idea of completion is a process of moving through cycles of cycles. It's not an event, not a single point in time, as we would understand that, as a warrior would understand that, but moving through a process. And Jesus says there are no shortcuts. The only way to the Father is this way of cycling through to perfection. No circumventing. We must endure. We must persist and complete the circle. Jesus talks about this again in the Good Shepherd metaphor that he uses in John, at John 10, starting right at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And if you know anything about ancient sheepfold enclosures, they were just rough, just piling up of some sort of natural rocks or sticks or anything that the shepherd could find, usually backed against a hillside, so he only had to build three sides and would leave a gap. And that gap was the door. And often after he drove the sheep into the enclosure... And sheep not being the brightest bulbs on the tree, they would stay inside. They wouldn't even try to jump out. He would lay down in that gap, sleep in the gap, literally becoming the physical door because they wouldn't step over him either. This is what Jesus is, is counting on his audience to understand as he uses this image. He is the door. The only way in and out that signifies that this flock is his flock that is following him is that they are coming and going by this door, by him himself. He continues in, in um, verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The door is this only legitimate way in and out. And Jesus, and Jesus' way is the door. The door is the way and the truth and the life. Again, all of these images coming to one point because they're saying the same thing. This happens so often in Aramaic thinking, Aramaic thought, and the, the construction of the Aramaic language. We're almost completing a circle as we understand that all of these images are trying to get the same point across to us. Jesus and his way is the door, and the door is the way and the truth and the life. They're identified with each other. It's not about whether you're inside or outside the sheepfold that matters. It's about experiencing the door. Can you see that? It's about enduring the door and the cycles upon cycles of doors that appear in your life. Because that is the way that we are perfected. That is the way that we develop an attitude toward life that allows us to be grateful for gifts that cycle in and out with the rains and the tides. The movie Castaway really made an impression on me. I don't know if, it, if you've ever seen it, but in, uh, in, the, in the movie, Tom Hanks is uh, shipwrecked, plane wrecked, on a small island for four years. His wife thinks he's dead. Everyone thinks he's dead. And then when he finally is rescued, he has this one scene with a friend, and he says this. We both had done the math. Kelly, his wife, added it all up, and she knew she had to let me go. I added it up and knew that I had lost her because I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there totally alone. I was going to get sick or get injured or something. The only choice I had, the only thing I could control was when and how and where it was going to happen. So I made a rope and I went up to the summit to hang myself. I had to test it, you know, of course, you know me. And the weight of the log snapped the limb of the tree, so I couldn't even kill myself the way I wanted to. I had power over nothing. And that's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow that I had to stay alive. Somehow I had to keep breathing. Even though there was no reason to hope, and all my logic said that I would never see this place again. So that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And one day my logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in and gave me a sail. And now here I am. I'm back in Memphis talking to you. I have ice in my glass. And I've lost her all over again. I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. I got to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise and who knows what the tide could bring. I love that. Enduring to the perfection of a cycle, even when it seems like it may be hopeless, even when 
life is just taking the breath out of your lungs, cutting you off at the knees, but to keep breathing, to keep living, to keep moving, even when you can't imagine what the outcome would be, you begin to realize that the outcome is not the point. The completion of the cycle is the point. The hero is not the one who completes the journey. The hero is the one whom the journey completes. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Year in, year out, we experience these cycles. But are we letting them, are we becoming aware enough to let them have their effect on us? The turning of last year to the beginning of this new year is one cycle of life. We're still breathing. We completed that cycle, and so we completed it. But are we perfected? Are we present enough? Have we learned to be present enough to have a perfect moment? Not perfect in the way we think of it, but if we can welcome this new year, if we can accept this turning gratefully, entering by Jesus' door and Jesus' way of being present, we are becoming more and more perfected. And Jesus uh, still at uh, in John 10, but at verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. If you take that line, I am the good shepherd, and read it directly in Aramaic, it reads, Enna, Enna, Raya, Taba. Literally translated, I, I, shepherd, good. Fascinating. I, I, shepherd, good. The enna, enna, the repeating of that first person pronoun is another Aramaic idiom. It's an emphatic statement of being. It means I am emphatically. I am here. I am present. It's a statement of identity. Something we don't have in our language. Emphatic statement of identity. Taba, we just talked about ripeness, wholeness, harmony. Literally, Jesus isn't calling himself the good shepherd in the way we think of a good shepherd. One that performs well, right? Because we always think of things in terms of performance. This is more the shepherd of wholeness. Or even better, the guide to completion. Jesus is the guide to completion. That emphatically is his identity. That's how he functions. That's his whole being. That's his whole purpose, is the guide to completion. You could paraphrase that line, I am the good shepherd, by this. My presence, my being, my whole being, shepherds, guides, tends to wholeness and perfection and ultimately to Abba, to my Father. It is my presence that does this. That's why I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one completes the cycle by any other way. How does this happen? How does this happen for us? It's simple. When we bring our enna, enna, to God's enna, enna, when we emphatically bring our presence to God's presence, the moment is perfected and we know it. 
We feel it. We understand that there is more to life than just what we can measure with our instruments and our senses. And in that knowing, things change. Attitudes change. The fear of death changes. The fear of everything that the world can throw at us changes because we know that we know, enna to enna, that there is more here than meets the eye. These last three years have been difficult. Yeah? I read an article that said, Americans are exhausted. (laughs) I resemble that remark. And our difficulties are going to continue into 2023, just as they always do. You know, we can hope for a better year. We have hope for a better year. But the truth is that 2023 will be a mixed bag like 2022 and every other year has and always will be. But will it be a good year? Will it be a Taba year? That's up to each one of us. It's not up to the year. It's up to us. We have to change our idea of perfection, change our idea of what is good and what is bad. Because it's not about perfect circumstances that make a year or a moment good. It's us being present to, aware of, accepting of the imperfection that is presented to us right here and right now. Making friends with the terms and conditions of life. You know, all that fine print that you never read in all those software agreements, you know? Life has terms and conditions too. They're very simple though. Are we willing to accept them? Will we click that button deep in our spirit? So even as we work for change, even as we work to change the things that we know need more perfecting, we can still let the moment be just enough for us, this moment, any moment, and allow it to be perfectly imperfect in that moment. When we can balance the now and the not yet, as we've talked about so often, that will be a perfect year. Let's have that kind of perfect year in 2023, regardless of what comes. And I think Jesus will be smiling. Let's pray. Father, once again, gratitude is the only the only effect that we can feel to everything that you've given us here. And we do celebrate this new year. We celebrate the coming of another cycle as we understand it. Another chance to make some tracks, maybe in a new direction, that we can point to and say, yes, we've made some progress along your way. Another experience of of a doorway of a cycle that brings us closer to you and to each other. So help us with this New Year's resolution, Father. Make us more aware that it's not the things that we want to change, but it's the way that we see the things that we want to change that makes all the difference. Help us to see differently this year, see deeper to understand what's really going on And what's at stake for all of us? We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us with the abandon that you've shown us all our lives. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.